No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and joining me again this week on the program is nobody. Uh, this week I've been continuing my deep dive into consciousness and death and how the two interact and what that weird overlap is between them. So thank you for sticking with me for this weird ongoing series that I am very much enjoying digging into. Before I get into that, as always, just wanted to say thank you at all for listening to begin with because, frankly, the fact that anybody would ever listen to this just blows my mind. I've been doing this just as a means to uh, exorcise some demons and uh, talk about some things that I want to talk about that I don't normally get to bring up in good company or in polite social settings. Um, You know, it's not the most fun thing to talk about at brunch unless you're with a very specific crowd, and uh, this is an avenue that I can actually do that. So thank you for listening and uh, joining me on this weird journey. If you have questions, questions, thoughts, comments, feedback, anything that you would like to share or things that you'd like to let me know, please don't hesitate to reach out at uh, yourdead2 at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter or Instagram at yourdead2, Y-O-U-R-E-D-E-A-D-T-O-O. I'm out there. I'm willing to talk. I just want to make sure that you know how to get a hold of me because the internet is a wide and uh, depraved place and want to make sure that you know how to find me. It is December, what, 12th today? Good lord. Uh, We're moving right along through the holiday season and frankly, there's something really nice and quiet about winter that I love. It's been sub-sub-zero here. Um, I think our wind chill yesterday was something like 15 below zero and I'm always amazed that Literally anything can survive in this. It's been um, snowing off and on, and then with this really crazy cold snap that we had, I mean, that was the first one that we had of the year, and it's just, it never fails to impress me that anything can survive out in this. I've seen the little wildlife that we have in the area here of, you know, birds and squirrels and rabbits and kind of the usual suburban menagerie. Um, Occasional fox. Eden Prairie has also suddenly become home to coyotes as well. That's been a weird thing to be out shoveling snow and hear coyotes howling in the distance. Uh, That was definitely a, okay, everybody get inside. This is uh, no longer a fun, carefree thing. I'm just going to be on the watch for coyotes. Um, But as this has been coming, you know, I, I, I like... Winter is difficult because it's so dark and so cold. However, there is a peace and a comfort in having a base to retreat to and kind of call home that um, you can hide from the inclement weather and be safe and warm inside. So I uh, don't mean to lord it over those who don't have access to good safety, shelter, warmth, comfort. Um, I'm sorry and I hope that you can find access to it soon, but uh, it's nice to be able to be inside and toasty and making dinner for my family knowing that uh, we're all safe inside here. And frankly, it's so darn cold outside that if... uh, You know, it's, (laughs) I've said before, it's kind of a a home safety measure of, first of all, if it's that cold outside, I'd be hard-pressed to find anybody sneaking around in the dark trying to break into stuff. I know it still happens, but just the fact that it's that dangerous to be outside, it's... uh, (laughs) <laughs> it's a deterrent. Uh, additionally, if there's fresh snow on the ground, you can tell where there's footprints, which is helpful for peace of mind. If you just look out the windows at night, no footprints, nobody's there. So it's a nice, uh, <laughs> uh, ecologically sound way to have some home security, I suppose. Um, but whatever helps you sugarcoat the fact that it's cold and dark. Um, I just like having a calm, peaceful home and, 
I've made a real conscious effort with my better half in the last, um, well, I mean, probably a month or so. We've really gotten away from having the Today Show on in the morning. And that's just been out of habit for the last couple of years. Or just when we get up and get the day started, we would have the Today Show on just to kind of feel like, all right, what are the headlines? Let's just kind of, you know, you roll out of bed, get coffee, get a shower, get the kiddo up and get moving. And we've realized it's just bad news. It's just bad mojo. Why do we need Al Roker screaming about how weather is going to affect 10 million people in this system? And like, you know, political headlines of, you know, this is what happened and breaking news, be alarmed. Like it doesn't need to, we don't have to start the day that way. We don't get bonus points for being extra alert about bad stuff we have no control over. Some of this stuff's above our pay grade. So it's been nice to be able to kind of uh, recalibrate how we start the day, having removed that. And on top of that, we've also gotten away from having uh, a steady stream of late night talk shows making jokes about the same things, basically the flip side of starting the day and ending the day with nothing but bad news and uh, volatility and uh, venom. Just it's it's needless negativity that we've kind of uh, at first very intentionally and now just kind of through momentum have gotten away from and it's been really nice. It's been nice and calm and peaceful and uh, we like to have a calm and peaceful house and I've, uh, you know, it's just been really beneficial. So I've been trying to foster that and as the holidays come up there's always chaos and stress for the end of the year it's nice to have this kind of uh sanctum sanctorum here of a a quiet peaceful place so i uh i'll leave it at that for this week let's just dive into the subject So consciousness after death, consciousness and death, what happens here? How are we working with this? Um, This week, I actually spent uh, some time in the week reading a book by Mary Roach called Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife, or um, as it's known in other translations, uh, Six Feet Overground, or Six Feet Over. Um, I actually had been turned on to the book because a friend of mine, Sam, what up, Sam, had recommended her uh, previous book, Stiff, The Curious Life of Cadavers. Um, I actually haven't had a chance to read that yet. My library's copy was, uh, taken and, uh, I just happened to see that Spook was another book that she'd written. I thought, well, that's right up my alley. That's clearly a no-brainer. So, checked it out, read it, and I was surprised at how quickly I was able to just dive right in. Um, it's, by and large, especially if you're into the subject matter, it's an interesting book. I found it to be a little, this is going to sound nuts coming from me, a little irreverent for my taste almost, that uh, as well-written and as pleasantly conversational as Mary is, I just, I wanted it to be, I don't know, a little heavier, a little more, <laughs> a little more navel-gazy for my taste. Um, but that being said, she's a wonderful writer and uh, it just really clips along very comfortably. So if you're at all interested in it, be happy to recommend it and share some thoughts with it. But uh, long and short of it is this book, uh, published in 2005, again, title is Spook by Mary Roach, R-O-A-C-H. It is uh, an examination of how science tackles the afterlife. And... I didn't want to just straight up do a book report like I did with um, Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, which I still highly recommend. I have my copy sitting right over there. Um, Can't recommend that book enough, but let's just... Okay, back to Spook. Uh, It's just so 
coincidentally relevant to what we're talking about here. I had it on my to-read list for a while, and I realized as I was prepping for this week's episode, oh, kind of all the stuff I wanted to talk about was covered in the book, and I should just kind of go step-by-step and cover it, not necessarily in a deep-dive granular, let's go through and pick apart Mary's take on things, more so in, I just found what she talked about really interesting, and I found it to be... uh, oddly relevant to what I was doing, and I hadn't really anticipated it uh, dovetailing quite like this, but it was just really nice to be able to do so. Uh, It's also a reminder of how (laughs) just idiosyncratic and weird this stuff is. It's um, It's not the most comfortable stuff for everybody, and the book really makes it clear how outside of the norm this is for a lot of people, that this is not something that is often handled by <laughs> the conventional or, um, it, you know, it's weird subject matter that kind of attracts weird people. And uh, it's also a reminder of, frankly, how much this has become secondhand or second nature to me, but I'm still standing on the shoulders of giants. And and I should explain before I go any further along that uh, that, that sentence or that uh, analogy is that science has marched me all the way up to this point. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants having not accomplished anything myself. I'm simply uh, enjoying the view from where I am by a matter of uh, when I was born, frankly. It doesn't matter that uh, I have these thoughts so much as all the groundwork has been laid for me, and I shouldn't take this stuff for granted. So what it is, it's a reminder of how uh, skewed the perspective was or how far this has come along as a courtesy of the groundwork that's been laid before me. But it's also, it was a kind of a bummer to see that it was a lot of just debunking bullshit, that it was just really... um, not that there were like charlatans and hucksters. I mean, there's certainly uh, an element of that. Wherever there is human curiosity, there's the endeavor to make a buck off of it. But the idea that um, it's just as science marches on and we get a better understanding of what things are, it changes our perspective of what the world is. So like when I've talked about when I was first uh, brainstorming about how to make this podcast and what I wanted it to be about, uh, one of the first bits of feedback I got was, well, I mean, what is isn't death kind of an easily established thing and why do we care about what the nuance of it is and uh again it's it used to be it used to be just defined as the cessation of heartbeat and then as we've learned more about how the body works and how humanity works and how biological components work we've further sliced that into nuance that um to use a phrase that made uh some friends of mine laugh at a meditation thing that we did uh you see there's a chronological component to the biological process uh meaning that as time marches on the body responds in different ways and that there's inherently a linear and biological component to what we're doing here so basically it's uh it's a weird process and we've got to really figure out what we're looking at from a past perspective to understand where we're going for the future and it it doesn't feel um i don't know awesome or groovy to figure out what this was and it's not the most romantic thing to think about further i think it was neil degrasse tyson of all people who said um if religion is just a a continually reducing gap of knowledge that you're applying god's will to uh it's disrespectful to god i don't know i'm paraphrasing that and not getting it right but basically if you're just 
if you're just pasting over the gaps in scientific knowledge with something you claim to be religion, that that's a discredit to both religion and how you approach science. So this is more so, I don't know, I'll stop navel-gazing. Um, one of the first things they cover in the book is they, one of the first things Mary covers in the book is the notion of reincarnation, um, and it's dealt with by examining um, supposed modern cases of it, uh, particularly in India, where there is more of a religious adherent to the notion of reincarnation as a practical, everyday occurrence, and um, she accompanies a, a man who studies these cases and uh, goes about interviewing supposed cases of it, and it was really... I don't know. This is where it, for me, this is kind of where the the dew came off the rose, meaning I realized what I was in for, that it was not a heavy-handed, uh, granular, scientific look at what our, you know, backgrounds or possibilities. I guess I don't even know what it is I'm wanting, which is not fair to, for, to Mary for me to say this, but it... It was not that it was surfacey in any way, which it certainly wasn't. It was more so that there was kind of a uh, casual viewing of it, almost. Like, it's... I mean, obviously, as visiting India, she was a tourist, but it... I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of struggling to find the right words to convey exactly what it is I was butting up against. But um, there was certainly amount, certainly an amount of... Uh, <laughs> an amount of snark that I was not uh, unfamiliar with. You know, I certainly get where she's coming from with it. But it was interesting to see how um, supposed cases of reincarnation can be both odd and puzzling, and, you know, you can kind of see something tantalizing there, but at the same time, simply by cultural norms and values and then geographical proximity of extended families and how word travels through community, how it can easily be understood for people to kind of say that they are reincarnated and have it um, inversely validated through almost a game of telephone where um, you hear things but you don't hear them firsthand or you get in bits and pieces of information that you later kind of backfill with um, incomplete memory to kind of reaffirm what you're understanding about a scenario. Basically that like young children would say that they're the reincarnation of somebody and then by having encounters with the family they would have. I don't know. It's Again, I'd highly recommend just reading it just to see kind of what her experience is with it, but it was... I was certainly dubious of it myself. I didn't expect her to come out and say, well, clearly here's an example of this, and here's, you know... We would have headlines about this already if this was the case, but it was interesting to see how non consequent or, you know, yeah, how inconsequential it was for the notion of reincarnation to be... Uh, a part of society and how it seemed to be kind of a, um, certainly not denial of death, but just a, 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 a facet of it that uh, there's a possibility you'll come back. For some parents, it was a relief or a, you know, a, a blessing to have a second time around with a child that they'd lost to have some experience with that person again, or, you know, that death is not final. It was interesting to see that it was, it's like what I think about if, um, 
<laughs> if the government discloses that there are actual factual little green men running around on the moon, I feel like it would just be chaos and, you know, the war of the worlds all over again when uh, looking at this reincarnation stuff in India, it, it seemed to be kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's possibly what, what we're dealing with here, but it could also just be, uh, you know, a, a misunderstanding based on two families having some overlapping community structure and the, it, it was almost kind of peacefully accepted, which was certainly refreshing in the world of hot takes and, you know, scaring headlines. Um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting start to it. I'm curious why that was the starting off point for the book. Maybe, uh, maybe Mary found it the most, uh, engaging and wanted to get that right out there and hook people in and say, here's directly a thing that we can point to and say, uh, people are attesting to this and people are experiencing this. We should go look at this. But I, I don't really know why this was the first, um, examination Pacific, specifically, good Lord, in particular, when, uh, the rest of the book seems to take more of a linear chronological view of how all of this works. Um, the next section being based on um, dissection and how the search for a soul or a consciousness within people um, was kind of chased by dissection and even in some cases vivisection um, or, you know, autopsies done on deceased that people would try to figure out what is it in people or animals that gives rise to being, that gives rise to consciousness. And certainly, um, as we had a better understanding of biology, that we tracked it down to something in the brain, that uh, we started to kind of poke around and figure out, like, okay, different things in this brain do different things and uh, are responsible for different facets of our living existence, like... Um, being able to cause seizures or unconsciousness by, in some cases, literally just poking the brain, just, and the person's out. Um, so that was kind of horrifying, a little bit squeamish to figure out some of that stuff and to hear um, what <laughs> exactly some of that entailed, but it was kind of a, a harbinger of what comes later in the book, that it's really when it comes to nailing down what this overlap would be between uh, potentially a spirit or something ethereal or what the conscious nature of humanity is or, you know, conscious entities, period, that nailing it down, in some cases literally, to a biological process is not as easy as it would seem, that it's not just a one-to-one, -one, well, here's where it comes from, and if we just cut this piece out, there's no more, like, here's how you make a zombie. That's really not the case. And it was interesting to see how that traced from antiquity through today and what we've kind of learned as, uh, again, standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, from there as well, there is uh, an ample amount of time spent, not ample, I mean, an understandable amount of time spent going into the notion of the 27 grams. And as somebody who, <laughs> again, spent a lot of time in Catholic universities, um, this is something that was always kind of bandied about without any kind of real backing to it, but it's something that was kind of thrown at me by frustrated um, religion or philosophy instructors who, <laughs> once they started asking too many pointed questions, they would kind of throw this out there and say, well, here's this thing, and uh, what was this then? If this, uh, if you're questioning all these things, well, what's this science about? And it, it comes down to um, weighing a person when they die and what happens. And 
the men in particular doing these experiments as they were observing the dying, they were putting them on a very, you know, delicate, broad scale so that they could take the entire body and all of their dressing gown and everything. And at the moment of expiration that they would observe some tiny fluctuation in the weight total mass of the body and that supposedly this would be the soul or consciousness or whatever the um, ephemeral nature is leaving the body and as Mary is quick to do through a number of uh, deep dives into things and talking with uh, other experts about this basically not a bunch of horseshit which <laughs> kind of that was a little bit validating to have some clarity after uh, you know some smoke and mirrors from my uh, my lifetime of Catholic schools that, yeah, there was not a whole lot of scientific uh, efficacy done for these experiments. That it was not uh, controlled measures. There was a lot of a lot of variables happening that were not accounted for, and the level to which you would need to really isolate and contain something is simply was not practical at the time of these uh, experiments being done in the eighteenth and nineteenth hundreds, but. Not only that, there were further ones done with uh, animals and just frankly, if you, how do I delicately say this? If you know what happens to a person or an animal when they die, um, there is a certain process of um, muscles relaxing and things kind of opening and letting go. And uh, it's not beyond uh, the realm of understanding that they weren't taking into account the fact that... um, stuff comes out. Uh, particularly in uh, experiments using mice, they, they attributed some of the uh, almost immeasurable weight change to uh, simple act of perspiration, that it was just uh, moisture evaporating off of uh, the dead mouse, or that if it were a person, they're avoiding their bowels, and that's somehow not uh, staying controlled scientifically, so it's changing the weight of things, or even, God forbid, somebody just touches the damn scale. I mean, intentionally or not or unconsciously wanting to sway bias that it's not uh, the notion of this measurable, repeatable notion of what the soul is leaving the body. There's really no backing for it, which uh, I found that oddly comforting. I don't really, uh, (laughs) I don't want to build myself up by putting others down, but it was nice to kind of have that validated in my own experience. Uh, from there, we go on to uh, spiritualism and mediums. And if you want to do a real deep dive on this, there's actually a, a fantastic series by uh, noted internet uh, radio jock personalities, the last podcast on the left. I know that they're uh, an acquired taste, but they do a couple of episodes on spiritualists and what all of it entailed. But long and short of it is um, there was this resurgence of a fascination with seances and uh, all sorts of spooky stuff and um, summoning ghosts and tapping at tables and without really building it up too much and without kind of deflating it too quickly, it's scams and scamolas. Uh, People that either are very, 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 very talented at reading the room or getting to know people, but... um, all the business from the late 1800s about, um, you know, Madame Blavatsky or people raising tables or causing rapping on the wood or, um, you know, 
disembodied voices. There's really the second you start peeling back the layer of um, obfuscation on top of it, you can start to see, oh, here's how this kind of trick was done, or here's how this thing was kind of performed. It really, <clears throat> there was a lot, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a big advocate of it. Uh, I think Thomas Edison at one point she mentions was a big proponent of this. It's It was kind of a, a fad of the day, um, and I can certainly get it. If anything, it reminded me a lot of um, Ray Stance in Ghostbusters, that, that this notion of uh, ectoplasm and uh, summoning the dead and talking with disembodied voices. That's just, there was real, basically the second you start peeling back the layers on it, you can start to just see right through it of, I don't find that disheartening. That's just kind of like, oh God, this is, this felt more like the great big book of bullshit where um, it was hucksters, you know, it was people looking to make money or swindle, not swindle people, but, you know, putting on theatrics for the sake of I don't know, just money, you know? I'm looking for a means to an end. Um, again, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. There was certainly uh, an interesting passage about a palm reader who um, was just kind of, for better or for worse, making it up as he went along and was told that he had a real gift for it when he was just kind of barely interpreting things based on things he'd read and then went so far as to actually give somebody an inverse uh, palm reading where he said the opposite of whatever their lines on their hand would, would suggest and the person had said after the, the fact I've never had such an accurate reading in my life and it's like well yeah how much of this is what you want to hear and how much of this is the person telling you what they can perceive about you and it's the example that really struck with me too is if you were to take your horoscope and read it every day for a month and think, yeah, some of this stuff applies, but then after that, you go back to all of the astrological signs or the zodiac and cut them up without names and rejumble them, you would be hard-pressed to pick out your own from what had been going on. That it's There's a certain amount of ascribing your own experience to it. And again, this is... I'm sounding like my own version of what I talked about last week, which is the, you know, the assumed arrogance of the internet at large, poo-pooing all of the supernatural when uh, Mary does a fantastic job of going step-by-step step through a lot of the stuff and just saying, you know, here's what this likely was and here's what this likely was. And it really, it, the, <laughs> the book, that's why I think the book is a little disenfranchising or a little, um, disillusioning because it, it takes so much of the the fantastical and what could be and just saying uh nope this is bullshit this is bullshit this never panned out this is bullshit so it was really you know and with with mediums and spiritualists i you know if you are one please reach out let me know why i should stop disparaging um I've got friends and family who have actually gone to spiritualists or mediums and had incredible um powerful experiences with them so, in the words of Seymour Skinner, prove me wrong, children. Uh, let me know, because I am i don't want to be so closed off as to just say, I know all the answers, and I'm here to tell you what... The, that's not the point of this podcast. The point is for me to dig into this and find out more, and uh, hopefully share it with people. So, if you'd like to, please correct me. I'm more than willing to talk, and I don't want to just seem like uh, a hardline skeptic, because that's not really a way to go through life. Anyway, moving on. Uh, we then look at um, EVPs and EMFs, so electronic voice phenomenon and electromagnetic frequencies, what interaction they supposedly have with the spirit world. Um, 
long and short of it is none. Uh, but I think there's more to be done here. And I'm realizing as I'm saying that out loud, I'm betraying my own desire for... Uh, I want a little mysticism out there. I want something to happen. I want, I don't know. I don't necessarily believe in any of it. Uh, but I think that there's enough when it comes to our understanding of electronic recordings and <laughs> this is where my own, this is where I'm trying to cash the check that my mouth just wrote. Um, so EVPs are supposedly when you record what is otherwise, no pun intended, dead air, and you're just walking around a quiet space recording, and then when you play the tape back, you hear some sort of disembodied voice telling you something. Um, there are literally thousands of examples of this online. Um, it's a mainstay of a lot of the ghost uh, reality shows that you'll see that there's, you know, once you tell somebody what you're supposed to hear, you can certainly, uh, your mind does this great biological trick of making you think you do actually hear that. Um, and there's some discussion in the book about how that process works as well. It's kind of um, similar to the notion of how your face, or your your mind wants to recognize faces in, um, in roughly face-shaped things as a way of detecting predators and identifying communities because that's how we've evolved. It's like this holdover from uh, being animals. We are animals. Shut up, John. Um, but again, with here's a better example of why I want to put some more thought into the EMF thing, which um, the examples that Mary goes into are with castles in uh, in old Europe and particularly in England. That she's going to these castles and these places are supposedly very haunted. I mean, it's it kind of a hand in hand thing of old castles, old spirits. Um, Ultrasound and infrasound are, <laughs> those are real things. Those are, I've seen how they work. You know, I've seen an ultrasound of my own child before she was born. Um, it's, you know, it's long wave waves that are not blocked by the biological material. And as such, they're able to partially permeate material. And then what bounces back, you're able to make kind of a Doppler effect radar, of, you know, similar to how bats work with sonar. It's, there is something demonstrable about it. Knowing that, and then also knowing how particular locations have unusual properties to them. Um, there are, again, it's hard to talk about this stuff without sounding like I'm just totally off my rocker. Maybe I am. Uh, but the notion that, it, let's say you build this huge building out of stone blocks, um, and they're all made of a particular type of stone, that when they sit together, the way the waves work with the surrounding land outside of the ocean crashing up on the shore, or maybe water tables below the castle, or maybe the wind howling through the stone and tiny little cracks and getting through. What if there is some infinitesimally inaudible sound that causes some sort of feeling of dread or, um, you know, a hallucination? Mary talks about her own experience hearing uh, jungle cats make huge sounds, a lion roaring, and it, it drove her to tears without a feeling of sadness or despair. It just, it caused this biological process of like, 
hears the sound of a predator, your body just goes into panic mode of just, oh God! And you start weeping with no control. It's, there are certain things that are so specific to such a, a weird, isolated set of parameters that you would think it's so specific that there has to be some kind of grand design almost, that it's so bizarre. But on the flip side, it's just, it's like, what are the odds? Like the the notion of it's so specific that like, man, he'd never repeat that in a million years. But what if that's it? What if that's why that happens? What if that's how it works? So, you know, and from there she goes on to look into how, something I've talked about before in the podcast, which is um, the idea of how you can use electromagnetic frequencies to disrupt the brain to potentially feel like there are um, other parties in the room and going into a soundproof isolated room to to cause feelings of otherness that you can cause feelings of religiosity with certain frequencies going across the brain and Mary's take on it seems to be that she is not wired properly to receive it and I certainly could buy that based on the all of the um the diversity of neurotypical uh, humanity and uh, atypical ne- neurodiversity that you know, the notion of how we are all based on ballpark, the same chemicals and wires in our brain, but they're all made up in a different way. Some people might be more open to it and some might not. And it's, I have certainly read about similar studies to this that I can't cite off the top of my head, but hearing her reading her take on this and seeing how she deals with it and her own experience with what she sees and what she experiences, it was really kind of the first inkling of, oh, okay, so she's not just out of hand dismissing everything. She was seeing something or kind of experiencing something that that at least gave her pause of, well, what was that? That was not as easily uh, dismissed out of hand. Um, So I want to find out more about that. I want to do some more digging into... Uh, what causes these feelings and what our brain has to do with feelings of spiritualism. And certainly it overlapped with what I've talked about with Michael Pollan's book with um, How to Change Your Mind and uh, the effects of uh, mystical feelings and uh, psychedelics on the mind. So there's certainly, and I've talked about this with friends too, does this does this stuff come from within? Does it is it tapped into something beyond our mind? Like what is this? It's, again, it's, I could certainly see approaching it from a very strict, uh, literal scientific mindset, but it's so much more fun to live a little more romantically and think that there might be something out there. Um, She finishes off the book looking at near-death experiences in hospitals and how people have gone through the process of dying and coming back, particularly with uh, the insertion of pacemakers. Again, I'm surprised by what I read there, but at the same time, not really. It's, you know, granted Mary's sticking to... You know, the entire book is about 300 pages, and you could fill volumes of the internet with uh, all of the, <laughs> I say crap, all the stuff on the near-death experience forums. Uh, and I've had people sit here right across from me and tell me their own experiences, so I, I don't know. That's the difficulty of this, is that there's so much subjectivity to it. There's so much about consciousness that's just inherently impossible to study and I think that's where I get frustrated with this is that it's 
it's not so much that the science doesn't hold up because that's kind of how science works is that you test something and you discard what fails and you move on with what does work and then you continue to test and refine and improve it's not that this is all the big book of horseshit as i said in you know that all of these people were wrong-headed and just foolish for having done so it was that this stuff was done with the best intentions at the time to figure out what happens to our consciousness after we die when we're just coming to a different understanding of it now and some of the stuff that we've keyed in on about how different neurochemicals work and what is the origin of consciousness we still don't have the one-to-one mapping of a of a of how the brain gives rise to this phenomenon of consciousness. So this is just, this is another step along the way that it's it's not, there's not an end here. It's not, you know, we're not there yet. The, the grand mystery hasn't been solved. The box is still closed. I want to find out what's in there, but I don't necessarily think it's going to happen anytime in our lifetimes. And it might not anytime ever for humanity, because that just might be how we're wired. You know, it's just because you can show a dog a magic trick doesn't mean it's ever going to understand it, you know? So where do we go from here? You know, I just, I want to keep going down the rabbit hole and finding out more. Um, I want to keep finding out about how does this, <laughs> it's going to turn into flatliners. I'm just going to start uh, giving myself a nice bath and then, no, I'm kidding. I'm not, I'm not, not a danger to myself or others. I just, I'm so curious about what this is and how, uh, you know, some of the experiences she's talked about in her book with, um, and there's also some amazing posts on Reddit of all places, the cesspool that is the internet, people talking about what it felt like to be gone and to come back. Um, everybody's experience is inherently different, but it, sometimes it's like sleeping, sometimes it's not like sleeping, and I just, I don't know. It's, I, I am always amazed that people can be having the same conscious, subjective experience that I am and just not have any curiosity about it whatsoever. That just blows my mind. But then again, we're all different. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll end it with this. Something came back to me from, um, one of my favorite artists, uh, Minnesota, uh, native Dessa, who has gone on to bigger and better things. And, uh, last I saw, I think she's living in New York now. Maybe that's not right. Um, but there was a line in one of her older songs that, uh, we didn't come out of the seas for this. We didn't come down for the tr- from the trees for this. We didn't get out of bed for this pestilence of antidepressants and appetite suppressants. That we are just what happens when a rock gets some mold on it, and then that's left unchecked for a long time. And suddenly we've got, you know, complex notions of societal agreements about morality and how to do things and how we should best conduct our behavior in private and at the heart of it we're still just monkeys that have learned how to stand up a little straighter than the others and it's humbling and it's awe-inspiring but it really gives a sense of perspective of I've asked my therapist like is this detachment is this depression what is this and she said I don't think it's just perspective So, uh, Doc, thank you for uh, keeping me in check on that, but I'll leave it at there for this week, and uh, we'll dig further into consciousness and death and what they mean uh, next week. So thanks for listening, all. I'll talk to you later.